So hi, everyone. Um, we're back on Twitter Spaces for this Saturday's chat. Um, hi, Anne. Hi, Waii. Hi. So um, thank you for joining us. So last Saturday was a lot of fun. Last Saturday was a joint uh, event with uh, Duke Asian Pacific Studies Institute in their summer book club series. And in fact, um, uh, just to do some advertising for them as well. They were delighted. Um, they thought we were a lot of fun. So that's always kind of fun to hear. They um, And their second book chat is on July 12th. And it's with um, one of our graduate students um, who will be leading a conversation about Tokyo Uena Station. So uh, join that and read the book. It's a really interesting book um, if you're interested in especially contemporary Japanese literature. So um uh, Yang Weijin, uh, back to reading the stone. So a couple things that have happened. One is that I, uh, uh, one uh, you probably saw on the reading the stone Twitter account, I put out a little poll last night discussing whether we enjoyed doing it in the Zoom format or in um, continue via Twitter Spaces, and it's actually. The vote is close, You're just the, and the poll is still open, so feel free to continue voting. And um, but I did think it was interesting that it generated a conversation about what exactly is the shape of our book club. And several of you brought up really interesting points about how Zoom is more interactive. It was really wonderful to see your faces and to hear many more voices than usual, um, just because um, by seeing and interacting with one another it seemed more easy to make it a conversation beyond just the three of us. Um, but on the other hand, it seemed to involve um, um, maybe a little more, you know, presentness for some of you who want to do this in a lower key way, um, perhaps less of a podcast format. Though, as I mentioned on Twitter, even in classes, I never mandate turning on audio and video. I feel like this is a um, um, it should be a, a, at your pleasure. It's not a class, and um, it uh, whether you want to participate um, by showing your face or by joining the conversation uh, verbally is entirely up to you, even if we do it on Zoom. But um, another really great point that was brought up by several of you, Fran and Brendan and David and others, is that um, uh, the Zoom chat, which was very lively last week and became a kind of discussion of Team Baochai and Team Sifong and whatnot, um, is feels more ephemeral, right? Once the chat, once the Zoom is over, the chat is also over. But one of the, the paraphenomena that we've noticed from our Saturday chats is usually Saturdays on Twitter become quite lively after our discussions and go on for quite a while because people have a lot of... Um, wood of the escalier, right? A lot of a kind of turn of the, the, the staircase uh, thoughts that they wish to continue sharing and on Twitter. So maybe after the poll is closed, we can make a decision. But if the numbers are close, we can just decide to be hybrid. We can just have Twitter spaces as usual, but have um, Zoom once in a while to um, be more interactive. I think this was Fran's suggestion. Um, so, so we'll keep that a little bit in abeyance. So watch this space and we'll let you know. So sorry to have such a long preface about administrative materials, but let's leap right into chapters 23 to 26. We've sort of been hovering at the end of 
um, if we are going by the Hawks translation, the end of this volume one for quite a while. Um, but I think that um, we haven't kind of gone to chew on some of the the actual aspects of the text and some of the goings on. I think also the characterization of Dai Yu, right, coming into vividness as a uh, one of the characters, um, one of the main characters, of course, but one of the characters um, on her own in these chapters might be something fun to talk about. So maybe I'll just um, begin with that ending. How about the very ending of chapter 23, um, the passage I posted from both the Chinese Sanjia Pingben, but also the Hawks translation, in which Dai um, encounters, um, is introduced to uh, slightly inappropriate reading um, by Bao Yu, um, but also overhears other slightly inappropriate reading, as it were, through the form of uh, performance that she overhears. And that moment of both um, inspiration and um, leading to her own ruminations, but also a kind of ekphrasis, a kind of moment of encountering different art forms through reading, through hearing, through seeing, through watching, through her own memory bank of illusions. And um, so I was wondering what people made of that whole ending sequence of chapter 23. But maybe I'll open it up first to Anne and Waii. So maybe Eileen, I, uh, it's not a... Uh, not a good way to answer a question, but maybe <laughs> maybe I'll ask you why why do you like this so much? Just in a line, I mean, you know, in a, mm. in the shortest possible way to to um, if you were to ask, I mean, if you you have to answer that, why why does this passage speak to you? I think. Um... The longer answer would include narrative structure and how it introduces a certain kind of characterization of Dai. The short is it maybe really captures something about my own reading and viewing and watching experience too, mm -hmm. that it is so familiar in the sense of how um, one is, one um, understands one's self, especially as a young person, through reading and watching, which is the whole among experience, right? Um, but also the 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 different ways that a work of art or a work of literature hits you when you encounter it in by happenstance or by eavesdropping or by seeing a forbidden book, reading a forbidden book, or by the context of who gives it to you, or by the particular context of your life at that moment. So that particular kind of characterization of a young person encountering literature was really powerful to me, I guess, even as a, when I first read it. And this free reading made me think about that again. That's, is that a one sentence? That's a Proustian one sentence. <laughs> that's, anyway. that's more than one sentence, but I thought you, you've said it all, Eileen, so I don't have to answer anymore. <laughs> yes. that's, that's a trick. That's a trick. That's really sneaky of me. Um, yes. you know, what do you think, Anne? Well, yeah, I I don't I don't have an answer except to say that I had never really thought about that episode in chapter twenty three in that way, and I mean that's that's 
really one of the, the great fun things about these discussions. But I, I do think it it's interesting in, and this is the first time that Dayu has appreciated opera. I mean, it's that she she used to think that songs were just silly. And mm-hmm. now that she's read, she understands the power of another art form. So it it's like reading is, I mean, re- reading is the gateway drug. I mean, reading, reading enables her to understand an art form that she'd always been a little bit scornful of. And so I think that in a way, it this is sort of what Eileen was saying, but a little bit different. Um, that it is it is about reading and the reader in in the in the way we we do see um, that happening at several points in in the novel. Um, so I I think you both put it so beautifully that I I don't need to add anything. <laughs> I, I it's a trap. I would just add the footnotes. One is um, kind of echoing what Eileen said so beautifully. I I think especially for a young person reading this book, that really really hits home because, you know, let's say at an age when you've never fallen in love or um, think about mortality and so on, um, you read about a captor who also has not fallen in love or, or maybe confronted mortality in any serious way. Actually, in that case, it's not fair because she has lost her parents and all that. But, you know, but somehow as if promising you that you can live through literature, that this can be just as, as real and as compelling. And and I think to a young mind is a very seductive idea. Somehow you are moved by yourself being moved Moved by that, you being moved, and it's all one beautiful melancholy. And well, what's I love that, and I also think it's it's then it's so appropriate to both Peony Pavilion and um, Western Chamber, right? The two mm-hmm. intertexts of this text, because both of them are also about being moved by your own being moved, mm-hmm. and also falling in love for the first time by being touched by literature or art, right? I mean, that, that in, yeah, the confrontation with a painting or a dream or, mm-hmm. you know, or a chance encounter or, or hearsay or wanting to fall in love through poetry. And so it, there, there's something very uh, meta about this particular mm-hmm. moment. Yeah, so, so that, so this is the question and I have, I don't have an answer, but I, w- I wonder what, what others think, because I'm listening to Proust now. And if you think about the a lot of the passages in that book, if you think about Swan looking for uh, resemblance of Renaissance paintings in Francoise or or other characters, and you know, if you think about them experiencing something and then only able to think about it in terms of works of art and so on, if you think about that kind of matterness, I mean, at least for me, maybe I'm not a good reader of proofs, and other people will obviously be able to correct me because you know I'm just an average reader but to me that that makes everything really very mediated in the words of, of Wang Guo is ge, is, is is mediated but how is it that in Hong Lomong, while mediating everything through literature 
we feel that it's buga, that is somehow very immediate, although it is so mediated, and that there's a kind of innocence about it. it, it Swan is very jaded. Lin Dai Yu is not right. So how 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 does this happen? That somehow here the author manages to to use all these layers of mediation and madness, and yet still plunges plunges us into the immediacy of the moment. That to me is a kind of interesting question that I would like to be able to answer one of these days. Well, I have no answer, but I was kind of giggling uh, at the uh, "I'm just an average reader," <laughs> but okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. But um, um, but uh, a very a very well read and uh, you know professional reader too. But um, but I will say something about the Swan and what you're saying is that you know I also I actually read Proust in a kind of fever dream, eighteen sitting in in Lamont Library like reading it um, crazily. Um, and um, but you know one of the things about Swan is it of course Proust is the whole thing is premised as an older person who writes about being a younger person right so that that even though it begins with the you know for a long time I went to bed early um, it's 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 completely the stage of memory of an older person who reminisces and um, what's fascinating about Homomong is that it's staged as uh, maybe more like Goethe's Sorrow of Young Werther, right? Like it's much more staged as, which now as an older person, when you read Sorrows of Young Werther, it's, 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 it's unbearable. It's unbearable, right? Precisely, <laughs> it's unbearable because it, it feels like juvenilia. It feels like this, but the mm-hmm. but think about its impact when it came out and the way it inspired not just, you know, European uh, young, you know, sort of young readers and writers in, in, in the kind of European tradition, but also when it it really hit the kind of May 4th generation and whatnot, because it is this kind of rawness of emotion. And so I feel like Homong is this really interesting hybrid of both the kind of Proustian gesture of the older person who reimagines himself into the younger self and the 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 kind of chilolo, the raw, the raw juvenilia of the young word. Yeah. 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 That, that, but it, it is an interesting nice. combination, right? Yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. an interesting combination. Um, yeah, many years ago, when I tried to to think through this, I, I I thought, yes, maybe he has to do this because you know he wants to keep this all these figures young and innocent, right? We want to believe in their purity, but if they're they're only that, then the experience can have no depth. So that's why he has to give them a very literary mind to have them experience everything through literature and through imagination Mm -hmm. so that the experience can have depth, right? So that was sort of my way to solve this many years ago, but now I'm not totally happy with this solution. (laughs) Maybe there's something to that because in fact, these two things, it's like marrying Proust and... and, um, Better. I mean, yeah, yeah. they don't match their ex- extreme opposites, right? So how do these two things come together in such a moment? And added to that, um, the fact that, as you said earlier, Eileen, that both of these um, plays have have very sexual scenes, right? Mm-hmm. But Linda Yu, she has read the whole thing. And when she sits down and she hears these lines from Mudanting and all these other lines come to her mind and one of the lines that um, come to her mind is mm-hmm. That's the line from Xi Zhangji. So she remembers from Xi Zhangji the line about 
um, flowers falling, the, the stream flowing away and all the sorrows that go with it and so on. She doesn't remember the the, the love making in Xixiangzi at all, you know. So it's a very interesting kind of um selective memory or a very interesting interesting way to react to a work that is not just romantic but also erotic. Yeah, I you know I I was gonna say so so uh some of you know my daughter who is 12 and she's a very active viewer and reader and probably of so many inappropriate things that I don't even want to think about, but, um, and she'll probably kill me, but I know she doesn't listen to this, but the, <laughs> but when she was just a year or two younger and, um, she was interested in things, but that they also had explicitly sexual or violent aspects that like she was watching Lovecraft country, for example, or started watching Bridgerton. And yes, I, I have absolutely no censorship in this household, but, um, you know, with her older siblings, um she would she would actually turn away i mean not turn away as a, a kind of prudishness or self-censorship but kind of this is not what fascinates me about this work mm-hmm. and then sometimes she would just leave the work altogether because it it kind of made her it, she really loved certain aspects of things but she didn't want to encounter these other things or emotions or explicitness in this thing that she loved right so it's not to say that like all young people of course were interested in all prurians but it's but in something that she loved she didn't want that to muddy her love for that thing right so um as i say this is probably a year or two ago <laughs> she's probably a different kind of reader now but um um so i i i you know and i i noticed that about another young friend um who also had this kind of experience where she loved something she was reading a neil gaiman but she she's like i don't really want to deal with the sex scene you know i i want but i love this the scene of magic and i thought that was really kind of fascinating um you know as a way of uh, response to to um maybe a kind of dai type response you know. Actually, come to think of it, my daughter was that kind of leader too. So, okay, point withdrawn. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it great knowing that our kids are not listening so we can say all sorts of things? <laughs> but anyway, so. I, I, um, I, I have a, a point that's sort of tangential to um, what what we've been saying, but is is still about Dayu as a reader and reading. I mean, later... And these plays or scenes from these plays are performed in the in the Jia household, right? And at a certain point when they're in a it, I guess it, it's in when they're playing a game, Dayu quotes from them and Bao Chai reprimands her and says, these are these, these, you know, these are not appropriate. And it seems to me that that suggests a difference between viewing and reading mm-hmm. that reading the, the that kind of the interiority of reading makes reading in some ways more dangerous than viewing or at least makes it different than viewing that watching a play and reading a play are different kinds of things that have different kinds of 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 danger or effect or whatever. So I have a I have a kind of history history of the book kind of question for you two. But um so you know certainly when you look at uh there you know 
a big talking point in thinking about history of reading or history of the book and certainly the Western tradition is always about how silent reading is an innovation, right? A kind of post, uh, you know, really medieval innovation. And, um, and of course, uh, but what is the Chinese, you know, what is it, you know, of course in chapter are we on 22 or 23 now? Chapter 23, um, the, the books, these are books that are kind of, uh, uh, prevailed or like sent, uh, you know, given a little bit underhandedly to Baoyu, right? So for private reading in both senses, like both uh, reading alone, but also reading in privacy. So not to be known by people like by the grownups, as it were. Um, what is that history of reading? Do people read aloud? Is it, you know, like this whole discussion that people always have about history of reading? Is private reading a thing? Uh, for a lot of people, at what era does that really happen? So I'll give you a non-expert answer, meaning it's not a question I've done research on at all, but just some general impressions. I, I think the classics and the histories and Wen Zhang, you certainly read aloud um, because Juicy talks quite a bit about that, that how do you internalize the spirit of the classics is by chanting and by immersing yourself in the sound, he talks about Han Yong, Han Yong Chong Rong, right? So how, how does this Han Yong, this, if you think about those words, it's chanting and immersing. So these two things come together and this is how you um, internalize the spirit of the sages and so on. Um, and you, of course, people chant poetry and, and Wen Zhang and, and you, you talk about the songs of gold and jade when, when you know, what is a good piece of Wenzhang is that when you throw it on the ground, you you can you can hear the clatter of all that gold and jade. So it's 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 a very um auditory image when you talk about reading. So but the genre of and of course the genre of plays is performed, so it's also auditory as Anson. The way you receive it is auditory, but somehow at at least in this chapter, we, we know for sure that Lin Dayu is, is an act of silent reading. As I said, I, I did an experiment of reading in an hour just to make sure it's correct that you can read it in an hour. So so she reads it relatively quickly. She skips all the commentary. She just, you know, how's how do go again. So um so just a wild guess, maybe. I, I'm I'm guessing that fiction is the one genre that you don't read aloud. Unlike, let's say, the 19th century, and people would actually read by the fireside, you know, read Dickens or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know. um, and and I, I don't think we have that kind of reading. Uh, plays, I'm not sure people read aloud either, but I, I don't think people read it aloud. It's, of course, when you perform, when you perform it, it's, um, yeah, it's something you hear. I mean, it's, 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 it it makes, it's, it's just, I, I asked the question because it kind of makes one wonder like how special or how privileged is this particular scene of private reading that leads to her ruminations, right? In this, and also earlier on this chapter in 23, um, remember there's another kind of interaction of reading, which is Bao Yu's poems have now spread out, right? They've been written on walls and people are talking about the poems. And so presumably the poems had been chanted or recited or copied over so that it could then spread outside, quote unquote, the walls of the mansion. Um, but Anne, please. 
Yeah, I I have another um, non-expert answer that that pretty much coincides with YE's. Um, I I can't actually give us this. I was reading um, Liani Juan biographies of of exemplary women from the Ming, and I read one that said um, a, a a child overheard her father reading Mencius and tugged at his sleeve and said, daddy, 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 what are you saying? And he was so impressed that he called in a tutor for, for the girl. And I mean, I think that, you know, that kind of casual reference to reading aloud, but the, the question of whether fiction is read aloud is a really, is a really interesting question. And I think, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that, um, in 23, when Dayu is reading, she is reading, she's reading silently and she's even reading sort of secretively. I mean, she, um, but I, you know, I don't, um, but, but, and, and, you know, the, the rhythms of the vernacular language or the pseudo vernacular language and the rhythms of the classical language are so different that they would read differently, I think. Um but I don't know. I think. I mean, I don't know. Do 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 any of our our people in the Twitter space have any have any ideas or or information or or non expert opinions on on reading on reading fiction aloud? Yes. Um. Here I should say, um, hi everyone who's here. Um, um, feel free to raise your hand or you know somehow gesture at me so that if you want to to join the conversation, um, and um. So I'll just keep an eye out for that. So please do if you want to pipe in either about the passage in particular or any of the things that we're discussing. But while we're doing that, maybe we should also uh, wait for people who want to join in. But uh, we can also return to some of the other points that people have brought up. I thought one that was really interesting, and maybe this goes back to Wai's point about how does uh, how does Holomon capture this uh you know, particular kind of freshness of encounter, you know, and one of the, um, you know, with, so a young person with love, with literature, with, you know, um, and one of my uh, assumptions or just as a casual reader has always been, it's because it's interspersed in this larger world of doings. And a lot of the doings are quite vulgar, quite banal, quite mm -hmm. dark. And so there's a contrast to the way Bao Yu or Dai Yu or Shi Xiangyun or all these characters are living their lives in the garden versus all these other shenanigans or horrible things that are happening in the same chapters, right? Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about those dark things that are happening in the chapters, like 24, 25, 26, you know, the 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 voodooing, I shouldn't call that, the, the hexing, right, maybe? Mm -hmm. um, uh, um, the, the whole character of uh, Jiayun and, you know, whatnot. So any thoughts on those, that variation in tone and plot and interspersed with these, like, you know, lovely private moments of reading or poetry writing or bearing flowers or... Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right about that. That um, that there is a there is such a really strong contrast, and that does put 
put the the the, the freshness and sharp in in this sharp in it. But one of the things that I thought was really very interesting about the resolution to the hexing, it was the jade itself. And the jade had become tarnished. And mm. so the, the priest untarnishes the jade and then the and then says, and the, part of the solution is no woman can enter Bao Yu's room except for his mother and his grandmother. And it seems to me that one of the functions of the of, of what you've called the hexing scene is to is to remind us of of the jade and the power of the jade and the cosmological significance. So on the one hand, it does, you know, it does show us that that there are ways in which evil is alive in this world. And if you want to get somebody, there are people like old woman Ma who can come in and and perform bad magic. But it also brings us back to the to the power of the jade and also the fragility of the jade i mean the jade you know and and we keep seeing in this chapter again 13 years 13 years that it's it's really stressed to us that we're talking here about you know value as a 13 year old but so i think that it's those are really interest it's a really interesting scene i mean the problem is interesting but i also think the problem of the hexing is interesting but i also think the solution is really interesting i mean the priest basically says you have a solution here in the house the the jade itself so um I, I was don't know if I should say this downtown low or downtown Lou. You should correct me. But she says, murder, magic, and mayhem in chapter 25. I enjoy the return of the monk and priest to serve as a bit of dramatic chorus, polishing up our poor besmirched jade and kicking it onwards to another round. And this is exactly Anne's point, right? That the, mm-hmm. the jade is, we're reminded of the jade. Mm-hmm. In, what, do you, what do you make of the whole? Yeah, I've always been a bit puzzled by chapter 25. It doesn't fit in. It feels like it's a stitch into the plot. It doesn't connect with anything before or after too well, right? But it seems to um, belong to the stage of writing when when maybe the author is really more interested in making the jade a magical object and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, more interested in um, how Bao Yu is... Um, because of all these entanglements, uh, sexual, sentimental is is um, in in a sense deluded and has to be awakened and so on. Which of course is still the broad premise of the of the book. But I think at some point he, I'm just guessing he might have um, come to the conclusion that it's a bit more complicated than that. It's not as if uh, his experiences is is what. Um, what corrupt him that is that his experiences are also can also be something quite beautiful that he can be somehow living in this world and living this life of imagination and sentiment in a way that is really quite beautiful although of course also problematic but certainly not um not so bad as to be to um as to be classified as corruption because if you think about the monk coming back and say right? the, the, the traces of powder and um, 
have have covered the the, the light of this J. So which which makes us think that well, what has Bao Yu done exactly up to this point? She has had um, sexual experience with aroma, but when we read it, we didn't feel that it was um, such a such a wrong act or or that he is now corrupted or anything of the sort. Right? He's still very much um, in his own way a, a quite an innocent person. So. I don't know. I I I think maybe since he never lived to finish it, maybe he was kind of of two minds about how to write this character. That I either keep him in this, I don't I don't um, take issue with the, the more uh, realistic and possibly corrupting experiences of this real world. Make take it a bit more seriously, uh, make more of it, and make it more of um, um, and then a, a kind of real enlightenment and awakening from that. Um, corruption, uh, or to to say that uh, love is this really paradoxical thing that it may have these elements of the real world of um, um, of kind of spiritual delusion, but it's still nevertheless something really beautiful and pure. And and this other version of love somehow is what what we receive right as what Bao Yu's world is. But if you look at the depiction of Bao Yu. When he goes out to the to to drink with um, um, Shi Pan and you know making jokes about courtesans with courtesans and so on, that Bao Yu is actually older, right? So it, it's as if throughout there's an older Bao Yu who may be capable of doing naughty things, and then this other Bao Yu who's who's all pure and so on. They, I don't know whether there's any tension between these various versions mm-hmm. of Bao Yu, but we we now think of what whatever discrepancies we, we think of as irony we think of it as, as some sort of genus combination but it is possible that there are different stages of con- conceptualizing this character and that um maybe the the witch episode the not the witch the the uh, whatever madapo episode has to do with chapter 25 has to do with some thinking about a book as close in conception to the mirror for the romantic play from your um right. type of reasoning that uh, let's in, invent this world of young people, you know, being caught in the in love and its um, snares, and 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 then eventually they're awakened. And that's a relatively simple conception, right? And from that to to go to the land of illusion, where okay, you end up with sexual initiation, but you also encounter everything that is beautiful and meaningful. You, you know, including this figure that looks like both Linda Yuzhi about Tai and so on. So. Um... I see that, uh, well, Fran made a really interesting point about the characterization of Bao Chai at the end of chapter 25. And I see that both Fran and Hanan have come on deck. So um, whichever one of you wish. Hanan, do you want to speak? Oh, yes. Thank you, Hanan, speaking here. <laughs> on hexing, I just thought this is a good time to surrender a piece of my childhood memory that to this day, I don't have a good explanation for. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Hexing. So when I was maybe five, six years old, I once got a high fever um, and the fever lasted a whole week and uh, modern medicine didn't help at all. So my mom was getting worried. And then our neighbor, we lived in this big house that we uh, were with three, three big extended families. So uh, one of our neighbor was my maternal grandpa's older sister. 
and she learned about how I came into this high fever. And it was because I was really scared. I was with my mom in her like factory, which was spreading a complex of industrial um, structures. And my mom was on night duty and she went to do laundry somewhere. And I waited so long in, in the house alone, like her office is like a stand standalone house. Um, that I went out, I ventured out in my pajama to look for her, to couldn't find her, then was wondering all about the place and like really scared. Like, <laughs> And then I got into this fever that just wouldn't go away. So my grandpa's older sister heard about this and she performed what sounds like magic. <laughs> All I remember is she used a piece of tin that can be molten in he she mold she she molded on 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 a on a coal coal stove and chanted something and took the molten tin out to something said something it was a whole ritual and and my fever was gone. But I think one of <laughs> yeah that didn't convert me to. <laughs> So I'm still atheist, <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I think I think I think it's a you know I mean I think one of the wonderful points that you know about the story Hanan is that um, you know given that this folk belief and you know whether one thinks of it as religion or culture um, that the chat the the events of chapter twenty five don't or twenty four twenty five don't seem that tool right that they, they're not so out of the realm of right, right. habit mm -hmm. or belief mm -hmm. you know it's not some weird moment of you know of you know white bone demon or something like it actually is something that you would do and something you might and so um so that's one of the really kind of you know great aspects of it but um i do think that this particular encounter uh brings into sharp relief a lot of the characters in chapter 25, right? So um, certainly, you know, the uh, the concubine and the, the half-brother and um, and then, of course, and then Fran's point about Balchai. I don't know, Fran, do you want to say something about Balchai? Um, oh, I wasn't going to say something or, about Bob Chai. Oh, go ahead, or <laughs> so anything else. The, so. about, about the hexing, I, it, it was quite interesting that uh, Handan just said that she was still atheist, um, <laughs> even after having this kind of medicinal magic performed on her, because um, it, yeah, it just occurred to me that uh, uh, Bao Yu and Xi Feng are both characters that have expressed some sort of form of atheism in the book. Like mm, uh, interesting. Feng, when she's at the, staying at the Priory, she, I think she says to the abbess, oh, you know, I don't believe in all that stuff, meaning religion, I think, wasn't it? Um, can, can you hear I, me? Sorry. Yes, yes. Okay, just checking it. So yeah, and then yeah, also Anne, and, and I'll, I should let you know why you and Anne both nodded, but, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but just to give you the visual, I'm like uh, recounting the visual for you. Yeah, so it just occurred to me that yeah, Xi Feng had um, ex expressed her own atheism to, you know, to the abbess, no less, and um, and Bao Yu was one of Aroma's requests to him was that he, he stop um, maligning Buddhist priests and Taoist priests um, the, the 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 Chinese. I don't think Hawks actually translates this. Mm, interesting. 
Sorry. Oops, you're breaking up a little bit. But... Sorry. <laughs> I think uh, I think I think it's a notification kind of making my phone vibrate. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, so hmm. that whole issue of um... yeah, and then they're the ones that get this hexing performed to them. Is, is it some sort of punishment for not you know believing in the the spiritual world? Or, hmm. And will they will they change after uh, now that the jade has cured them? I, I guess they don't know that it was a hexing, do they? Because um, I don't think anyone found uh, um, Aunt Aunt Jow's, uh Right, uh, demon, the, 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 the sort of paper demons hidden under their beds. I think wasn't it? So I, I'm not sure anyone found them, did they? So they don't know it was there. Uh, yeah, is it revealed? It's not revealed, cures. right? I can't remember. No, but but, yeah. they, but they know that the the magic jade has cured them, so that's some kind of a uh, right, you know, some kind of magic uh, magic medicine has <laughs> been effective. So I no, see, I it just I just I just thought of it just then because uh, when you why why was it those two that uh, right. were chosen for this uh, this sort of. Uh, uh, and maybe, um, you know, maybe like, uh, you know, Anne's point earlier that this is really a moment in which, uh, narratively speaking, um, Top Teaching is just reminding us that the jade is magical, right? Like, I mean, that that really what's what it's serving is this particular moment. Um, but I actually really liked your point, Fran, about about Bao Chai too. Do you want to say just one word about that or? Um, okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I just um, that little passage. It's you know, it's the first time that I've sort of thought, oh, you know, what's going on here? You know, is she's been sort of too perfect up to now? She's come across as you know so emotionally mature and never putting a foot wrong that there's there's been nothing to kind of hook the interest really, and and you, you know there's there's been no sort of journey for her character to go on because she's just you know she's such a finished article already. Um, so yeah, that point was um, it seemed out of character for a start that she'd sort of uh, say something like that at that moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it's, she has this kind of edge. I actually feel like um, um, it's interesting because I think in Chinese, I, I now I'm I'm no way so I cannot do this from my mental database, but um, I feel like I get the sense of Bajai earlier in some of her comments, and I wondered, but I haven't read the Hawks carefully enough to see if all of it has been rendered in that way so i need i need just to clarify which comment the uh so end of chapter 25 um so when when she, when she laughs first um uh, dayu says like um, oh it's that, um, right. okay. she kind of would be so busy eating some gruel and so uh, dayu was very emotional and she's like oh my awful and uh, <laughs> right first she laugh. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, she kind of mocks her right i mean so she yeah. she has a kind of edginess there right i mean that she kind yeah, of she, she says something quite you know she, well she tries to sort of copy Feng's teasing of dayu right. earlier Right. She was you know, teasing her about drinking the tea means you're gonna marry our son or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and but but the but, but Bao Chai does it in really the wrong moments. I think it's really quite you know it comes across as very heartless doing it at this moment when Dayu is you know you know, think everyone would be very relieved and you know expressing you know some kind of heartfelt emotion, but then Bao Chai starts teasing and sort of being kind of catty. <laughs> so, I think she um, does it that. Kind of, it um, comes out of nowhere for me. I didn't. I didn't really. Um, it was it's surprising. I feel like she does this earlier too, right? Even in the scene where uh, she and um, Bao Yu first exchange their couplet, and she's talking about her medicine. Doesn't she also? have uh, not like such mild barbs but uh, barbs nonetheless i don't know uh, whereas that is just like all hang out there right like every 
every word of sarcasm or poutiness is just on the surface. It's always heartfelt, isn't it? It's yeah. always quite direct. And right. Pao Chai's got more filters. Right. So, but that's a that's a great one to chew on for all of us. And then, but um I will uh shift over and I see Brendan has made a couple comments. Brendan, did you want to join in or do you want me to just embody them for you? But um um how does explicit, the explicitly nostalgic framing of the opening of Homomo affect reading of passages like this, like meaning chapter 23 and such, that, um, you know, um, so I, you know, I guess in some ways returning to the question, the point we were making earlier about Proust, that um, my sense of the, you know, for a long time and went to bed early, frames it as explicitly nostalgic um, in Swan's way, but perhaps, uh, Brendan, are you arguing that perhaps Homo is also framed in the same way so that the melancholic notes are more front of mind in later readings, as you point out? Um, but so just something, I don't know what Anne and what you um, think about that. Um, and then, of course, Brendan is also mentioning the discrepancies in Baoyu's apparent age to the book. Um, I think um, he says, I agree that this is probably revealing different stages of composition and conceptualization of the character. Um, uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah. Not totally resolved in the end. And so many people have tried to establish exactly what age he is at what point and so on. I just want to say, um, I, I don't I don't know how important it is, but at least in my reading, I, I didn't hear about Chai as being... Um, Catty in that comment about Buddha being very busy in mm-hmm. what chapter said um chapter 25 you said right yeah I I think I hear some sort of good-natured raillery she, she's just teasing that you but it, that's a minor point yeah you, you're going to see her more seriously upset in chapter 30 if you read on so um oh I see Brendan has come on deck did you sorry that I uh kind of Hey, yeah, no, sorry. Um, yeah, so the the uh, nostalgic framing, I was just thinking, it, you know, Hawks makes this, uh, to me, still pretty weird decision not to include the author's preface at the start of chapter one, right? Uh, and so for most people reading in Chinese, one of the first things that you see when you open Home Among is the author saying, uh, that he's, you know, living in reduced circumstances and thinking back on his youth and, and kind of explicitly tying this project to, to nostalgia. Um, and, you know, Hawks instead moves that to his introduction. And, and uh, I don't actually know how that changes the framing and, and how that changes also the way that we read things like chapter 23, you know, is this... Um, you know, is it autobiographical? Is it nostalgic? Or is it just depicting a, a totally fictional character? Um, and uh, on the, the discrepancies in Bali's age, uh, I, I said uh, that, you know, yeah, it's it's probably, uh, you know, different stages of composition, but there is, uh, the effect, at least for me, is kind of dreamlike, right? It's very hard to nail things down, whether it's his age or, or even where things are happening. And, um you know, I, I'm not actually that sure that Cao Xiaoqing wouldn't have been capable of being meta at that level, considering all the levels that we know he, he was being meta at. Right. Um, no, absolutely. I think I think that's a very intriguing thought about, you know, I mean, I love, 
I do love that once we determine uh, a canonical author is someone we think of as genius, then everything seems intentional, but, um, and maybe not a question of copy editing, but, um, but I do love that point very much. Right. And, and um, so, but as we're nearing time, I just want to, um, uh, I don't know, Wei, do you want to give us a little preview? Um, so I should say that uh, we're, th- we're probably going to take a little season one break um, as um, late July, early August. Um, but that doesn't mean that the reading can't keep on going, especially on Twitter, um, but just that our Saturday chats will take a little break as some of us are traveling. And but um, but then return if people are still willing and, and able. And we, the three of us have said that we are. So we'll come back, um, you know, roaring back in August um, with some more discussions. But we still have a couple more weeks of Saturdays that we think we're going to meet up. So um, uh, what should we read for next week? So before we... Um turn on the recording, the three of us thought maybe we should end only at chapter 28 so that people read a couple of chapters this week. Uh, this will take us to the to, to a very important chapter, 27, uh, with Bao Chai chasing butterflies and Lin Yu burying flowers. Mm-hmm. So in playing cards and in all kinds of iconography related to the novel, these are the two images chosen for these two characters. Shi Bao Chai is chasing butterflies and Lin Yu is burying flowers. So Maybe we can just think about how those two image, some images sum up those characters or, or not, as the case may be. And then 28 uh, introduces um, Zhang Yuhan, and it may be a chance to revisit the qu- whole question of um, Bao Yu's uh, feelings towards young man, because in the case of Qin Zhong, we, we touched on it, but I don't know how, how much. I don't remember... Uh, as seeing anything particularly interesting or important. <laughs> I mean, beyond what everybody knows, that is. So, you know, so time to think about that again, perhaps. And also to pick up on what Eileen said earlier about how the, this idealized world in the garden is pitted against um, mundane scenes that are um, less, less than ideal, that sometimes even um, convey a sense of foreboding or uh, real iniquity and conspiracy even in chapter five. So that's a, a kind of an extreme version, but I was thinking in in um, uh, much less heavy-handed ways, we see this contrast, right? So Jia Yun coming to the garden uh, to, to, um, to plant trees and take care of the, to, to be some sort of um, upper-class gardener. And um, so, so he first of all he gets this position through some sort of bribes to Wang Xifeng, and then once he comes into the garden, there's kinds of suggestion that he and this girl Xiao Hong, whose name I think is translated as Crimson in Hawks, mm-hmm. um, that they they have some sort of um, potential um, um, flirtation going on and. And in, in the book, is is presented as something that is a, um, a less elevated version of what's happening with Lin Dai Yu and Jia Bao Yu, and some right. some readers even think of it as um, as darker echoes of Lin Dai Yu and Jia Bao Yu, which I don't think is the intention, but certainly a, a 
a different, if you think about the palette of the book, is a different use of colors, you know, it's showing things in a slightly different light. So if you want to think about nuances and contrast, then you can think about, about um, Jia Yun and Crimson as right. um, as compared to the to Bao Yu and Dai Yu, for example. And that's a that's a great doubling once again, and then also reminds me of. Um, um, I actually I remember in this rereading, what really struck me was the the pecking order of the maids are is so mm. clearly laid out in that flirtation moment, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and lots of um, really serious power struggle, you know, like right, right. Yeah, the like succession when Mao Zedong died or something, you know. I know, it? like accusing <laughs> accusing, of what, accusing Crimson of what she's doing or whether she's you know aiming for Bao Yu or aiming for Ying or whatnot. But um, maybe I should let um, um, or oh, I should let Anne. Um, do you have any thoughts on? next week's readings or no i mean i i think you've both said it so beautifully i don't have anything to add okay. i think um yeah we're also going to congratulate um um Anne on her emancipation from a wonderful term as a term or two from as history department chair right so now she gets yes. to do more fun exciting reading writing and dancing yes so, yes um and um, but I also just want to close with um, downtown Lou, downtown Lo, who just adds a really wonderful point about the private versus public reading, because she, she reminds us that um, that you seems to be comfortable ruminating on lines from Western Chamber alone, but reacts badly in Chapter 26 when Bao Yu tarnishes her private experience by quoting mm-hmm. salacious bits in mm-hmm. her presence. Mm-hmm. And that's true, right? That's, that's a wonderful. Yeah. That's true. And that's not Shui, that's not a Hualo Shui Liu Hong anymore. You know, right. it's the, the petals fluttering and flowing away with the stream. She she's lying there. She says, yeah. every day I sleep in this drowsy state of longing and <laughs> whatever. So it's actually a very um very sensual line, right? right. Um, so but but that point about private and public is is very interesting. So it's as if when she's spinning those ideas in her head, then we're still in this undefined state of, you know, sentimentality perhaps, and maybe it just steps on the border of sensuality, but it doesn't. We don't know for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, so uh, in conclusion, a total digression on my part, but if you've seen Turning Red, um, you remember this, but if you haven't, go see it. Why haven't you seen it? But <laughs> the latest Disney Pixar, but um, it's, uh, you know, the portrait of the artist is a young woman, but she basically comes into her puberty in some ways. I mean, she comes into her her imagination, her desire. So she starts like drawing, sketching pictures of a cute boy um, and also kind of doing fan art. But it's the moment of crisis when her mother and Count sees her art and misinterprets. And there's a kind of comic horror scene that happens at that moment. But um, in the overall story, it's a small moment. But it, so many people have seized upon that because, um, you know, when talking about the, the why they love that film so much is because of that keen identification with the 13-year-old who first uses art to express something that they can't quite put words to by, you know, like that they're using art as a way to deal with this newfound emotion in themselves, but it's completely destroyed when someone else who Mm -hmm. is not you um, is privy to that emotion. 
you know, and privy mm-hmm. to that art. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so yes, go see Turning Red if you haven't. But um, on that note, thank you very much. Thank you, Anne, and thank you, Wei, and uh, thank you all for listening. And we'll see you next Saturday and read to the end of chapter 28. I look forward to our Twitter conversations as well. See you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.